You're listening to a talk from the 8th Annual Smoke Farm Symposium, presented by KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Here, Smoke Farm's Brendan Kiley introduces NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientist Ken Williford. Our next speaker spoke at the first symposium, uh, Ken Williford. He is the deputy projects scientist for the NASA Mars 2020 mission, which uh, he describes as the next Mars rover mission. Uh, he is also the director of the Astrobiogeochemistry Lab, uh, known as the ABC Lab. Um, he went to graduate school at the University of Washington, now lives in Los Angeles, uh, and his research ranges has a huge spectrum from the very small Uh, such as microscopic fossils in the oldest rocks on Earth to find the origins of life, to the very large, the the incomprehensibly large, looking for life potentially elsewhere in the cosmos. Um, And Ken is also a great and longtime friend of Smoke Farm. So please welcome Ken Williford. Thanks a lot, Brendan. And uh, thanks, Stuart and Brendan. Uh, and thanks to all of you uh, for coming here and having this symposium keep going year after year. Uh, as Brendan said, I, I love this place. Uh, I came here the first time, I think, about 17 years ago uh, and instantly fell in love with it. And uh, it's, I would say... Without much hesitation, it's my favorite place. Uh, And it's, of course, made up of the river and the fields and this kind of thing, the events, uh, but primarily the people and the ideas. And so this event is really uh, symbolic of that. For me, the the ideas, uh, which are what drew me to this place originally. And so it's been great. I try to come back at least once a year now. And this is my, I make this event my priority. And it's just been fantastic. I feel really blessed to have this as a, a touchstone in my life to keep coming back here. So thanks, everybody involved in, in putting this together. So, um, Brenda did a, a nice job introducing my research, so I don't have to give you uh, too much of an introduction to me uh, as a person, but this is the question um, that uh, I wanted to address today in the talk. What motivates life and the search for life beyond Earth? So this is the, the driving question today. And I'm going to break the talk into two parts. Part one is going to start with the, the latter part of the question, uh, the search for life beyond Earth. And I'll just go ahead and tell you basically what I think the answer to this question is. That is what motivates the search for life beyond Earth. And it's uh, part of the reason I called the talk instinct. I think humans have... Uh, an innate desire, an instinctive drive for exploration. So we've always wanted, it's part of what uh, most fundamentally makes us human, is our desire to see new things, explore new things, be curious, uh, move over the horizon. It's what we've always done. It's what we continue to do. Uh, There are, of course, many other practical reasons that we pursue uh, the... um, you know, planetary science, exploration of other planets. We develop new technologies through that. There's a national impulse to, to be the first to get there. Uh, there's a basic human impulse just to get there first, you know, to get to the new place. Um, 
and then scientifically, what I think what drives this more than anything is, is the desire to really understand the nature of life on Earth more fundamentally, and our own nature uh, more fundamentally by doing that. So that's why I got into this work, is to understand the fundamental nature of life in the universe. That is the, has been the goal for me for a while. Um, not imagining that at some point along this road I will all of a sudden understand the fundamental nature of life in the universe, but that's the constant uh, drive and question. And so, as Brendan said, uh, I have sort of two main jobs. I work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, which is in Pasadena, uh, kind of out on the edge of L.A. by the the mountains. Um, And there I am uh, the first... When I came to JPL, I became the director of the Astrobiogeochemistry Lab, which didn't exist until I came there. They just asked me to come there and, and build an organic geochemistry lab, and they said, come to JPL and work on Mars sample return. And so as Charles beautifully explained in his talk, his long project, you know, that he may die before finishing, I'll knock on wood, I hope I don't die before, you know, finishing this one, but my long project, career-scale project, is Mars sample return. So... Uh, And that is because I come to it not as a Mars planetary scientist, but as an Earth scientist. I mostly study ancient Earth rocks. And for a long time, uh, for as long as I've been doing science, I've been interested in looking in old rocks for signs of ancient life and just understanding how has life evolved on the planet and how did we get where we are today. And so we use various techniques in my lab to do that kind of work. We go to Western Australia and other places where uh, especially ancient rocks are preserved especially well, uh, and we look for evidence of ancient life in there. And um, it happens that the same techniques that we use to do that, explore the oldest record of life on Earth, are the same techniques you would use to look for evidence of life in very old rocks from Mars. And so that's the other half of of my job, uh, which is this deputy project scientist role. And what that means, so there's a project scientist and and I, um, he's further along in his career at Caltech, his name's Ken Farley. Um, And so Ken Farley and I, um, they call us the Kens, um, are, we sort of manage the science part of the next Mars rover mission. And there are equivalent to engineers who manage the engineering part. So they're building the robot and we are... um, trying to help them understand choices they might make about what they might build on the robot and how that might affect the science that we want to do. And at the same time, helping the the team that runs the seven scientific instruments that are on the rover uh, get all that done on time and on budget as best we can. Uh, so that that's basically my job, and, and here's Mars. So I wanted to start really by telling you a little bit of the history of Mars exploration. So what what is motivating this uh, search for life on other planets. Turns out they had it figured out. Uh, Already in the late 1800s, there is life on the planet Mars. And uh, so Professor Percival Lowell, recognized as the greatest authority on the subject, I'm just reading this uh, article intro here, declares there can be no doubt that living beings inhabit our neighbor world. And the story goes on to talk about not only living beings Uh, So we're currently, within NASA, we're not out there searching for intelligent life and uh, complex conscious beings on Mars, but we think if we find something, it's likely to be microbial. It's likely to be microscopic. Uh, It might build itself into a form that we can recognize with our naked eye, but that would be like a wrinkly fossil microbial mat. 
something we call a stromatolite. It's made up of individual little bacterial cells uh, that are smaller than, than what you can see with the naked eye. But back then, Percival Lowell, building on, on the work of Schiaparelli before him, um, the big thing then was identifying new canals. So the article talks about how many more new canals on Mars uh, had been recognized by, uh, by Lowell there from the telescopes, Earth-based telescopes in Arizona. Um, and uh, it kind of reminds me of reading stories about exoplanets today. So it's so-and-so discovered, you know, 32 new exoplanets that are, that is planets that are outside of our solar system. You've all heard about that. That's how they talk about these new canals on Mars as evidence of intelligent life. Uh, so things have evolved since then. And in fact, in 1965, a JPL spacecraft, Mariner 4, flew by Mars and took this image. This is the first image ever transmitted back from deep space, uh, having been acquired of another planet. So Mariner 4 flew by Mars, took a picture of its surface, and it sort of looks cratered and, and dead and lifeless, no canals there. Uh, and this changed uh, uh, the way people viewed Mars uh, beyond uh, what Lowell was talking about. Um, ten years later, this image, this series of images was transmitted back, uh, first images that came back from the surface of another planet. So that last image was from a flyby way above the surface. Uh, these were sent back by a Soviet spacecraft, Venera 9, uh, from the surface of Venus. An incredible achievement. This spacecraft survived for about an hour on the surface of Venus and, and gave us our first pictures from the surface of another planet. Uh, so you, maybe you recognize this guy, one of my scientific heroes, Carl Sagan, standing by out in Death Valley in the Mojave region, uh, not too far from Pasadena, uh, by the Viking lander, the Viking spacecraft, a year after I was born. The last two images I showed you were taken two, a couple weeks before I was born. Um, and uh, so Carl is standing there explaining Viking. Uh, and Viking was the first spacecraft to send back uh, images from the surface of Mars. So a major achievement. Viking also had, as one of its principal objectives, uh, the search for life on Mars. And they, they were not looking for evidence of ancient life, which is our focus currently within NASA uh, for various reasons. Um, they were looking for life on Mars. What Does Mars currently host life? Uh, they were thinking of it as probably microbial life, but they had a number of experiments designed to reach down, take up some Martian material, put it into the spacecraft, and make some measurements to see if things were actually living uh, in the Martian soil or regolith. Um, most of the scientific community today believes that those experiments showed that there was nothing living in the soil, although the results were am somewhat ambiguous, very difficult to interpret, uh, and there are people who, who believe that that was a positive result there, but uh, general scientific consensus is that it was negative and there was no life in the Martian regolith. Um, so that really changed things. So science sort of figured, well, Mars does not appear to be currently inhabited. It's still incredibly interesting as a planetary neighbor, as a place to explore geologically by which we might learn more about our own planet, um, and it's, it's non-living systems, certainly, and perhaps there's still some potential to investigate the uh, you know, evidence for past life uh, on Mars, and maybe even current life. And this, uh, in 1996, this image was published. Um, it'll be hard for those of you in the back to see. You might be 
Raise your hand if you've seen this picture before. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Not not even half of you. Um, this was this really transformed my field, which is astrobiology. It really launched my field. We had a field called exobiology before this, and we still have that. Uh, but now we more commonly use the word astrobiology, and that really started uh, right around this time. Um, and uh, in fact, Bill Clinton gave a press conference. And based on the, the paper in Science that had this image, uh, said, we have found evidence for life on Mars. Uh, and this, this is taken from an electron microscope, and it's really this sort of sausage-shaped thing that you see here. Um, I don't show a scale bar here. It turns out that the diameter of this, uh, or the width of this sausage-shaped feature uh, is about equivalent to the size of a single ribosome. So... Although there was a lot of excitement about this thing early on, and they thought maybe it's potential evidence for life on Mars, uh, various factors have conspired to to lead us to believe that indeed this is not evidence for life on on Mars. It was found in a meteorite that was discovered in Antarctica near the Allen Hills region, so it's called the Allen Hills meteorites, the most famous of the Allen Hills meteorites, 84001, um, discovered in 1984, but this study was done in the 90s. Uh, got everyone very excited, uh, but it was ambiguous. And the search for evidence of life in rocks this old is always inherently ambiguous. But now we've we've come quite a long way in you know only 20 years of doing this kind of work, uh, and it's a lot of what my scientific focus is is to work to resolve that ambiguity. So uh, part of that was the uh, the Mars rover program. Uh, these are robotic spacecraft built at JPL. Um, and this was the first one called Sojourner. It was part of the Pathfinder mission. If you watched The Martian, uh, Pathfinder played prominently in that, in that story. This was really a technology demo. We call them tech demos at, at JPL. Uh, a lot of people thought this would never be a part of the mission. There were actually people actively as part of the Pathfinder mission Set, you know, trying to sort of keep it keep it out so that we could focus. They could focus on the main point of the mission, which was the lander. Um, but it turns out it, it made it. It stuck through, and and little Sojourner uh, rolled off the platform and now transformed the way we now explore Mars. Out of that success came the Mars Exploration Rover Program, MER, which was two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. You'll remember, I hope, uh, Spirit. Um, lasted for a good while, but then became trapped, uh, and it died, trapped in the sand. But Opportunity is still rolling, uh, having gone further than a, a marathon, further than 26 miles, farthest any, anything has ever roved on another planet. Uh, and Opportunity is still returning fantastic science, um, you know, more than 10 years later. It was originally designed to operate for 90 days, so it's just been a, an enormous success. Um, so then we scaled everything up. And uh, we, this is the Curiosity rover. The mission is called Mars Science Laboratory, MSL, uh, in 2012. And the purpose of this mission was to not find evidence of life on Mars, but find evidence for a habitable environment. So an ancient environment on Mars that unequivocally could have supported life as we know it on Earth. That was the primary mission of MSL, and it, it has been spectacularly successful. It's a much bigger rover. It's the size of a small car uh, relative to, to the last one I showed you, Spirit and Opportunity. Uh, but very early in the mission, 
MSL uh, made some discoveries and in an environment called Yellowknife Bay found that absolutely this environment, uh, when the rocks there were deposited, would have had water that is what we call circumneutral pH. So the uh, MER rovers found evidence for liquid water. That was a tremendous achievement. But the water, that early evidence for water, uh, it seems it would have been fairly acidic. So um, that doesn't mean bacteria couldn't have grown in it, but it wasn't sort of like nice, pleasant lake water that you could have uh, easily had a drink of. Um, that was the kind of water that uh, would have existed in this environment, uh, near neutral pH, so not very acidic, not very basic, uh, probably pretty salty, so it wouldn't have tasted good if you drank it, but uh, anyway, that was that. And it's done, it's done quite a bit more. So the, the rover I'm working on will look almost exactly like uh, the Curiosity rover, but it has some important new developments. I show you this um, sort of NASA-generated uh, slide just to give you a sense of the strategic path that we see for Mars exploration uh, within NASA. And so focus um, first on the top. You see the dates, so from 2001, 2015, and then all the way to 2022 and beyond. Uh, 2020, that's the mission I'm working on, science rover that's listed there. Um, and then across the top, you see flying through the sky of Mars, you see what we call our orbital assets. So these are satellites that we have flying around Mars. And it's those satellites, those orbital missions, with their high-resolution cameras and scientific instruments that allow us to pursue such a, um, such a well-developed program on the surface of Mars, because we can use these things to select landing sites that will be safe and scientifically compelling. And so that's what we do. And then we send these, these landed missions to the ground. And some of them are landers, like you see with InSight. It just sits in one place and does science. Other ones are rovers. Uh, and down below on the bottom, that is sort of the evolving scientific outlook. So we started with follow the water. So we're looking for evidence of ancient life. All life that we know on Earth requires liquid water. So if we find evidence for liquid water, that's a good first step to finding life as we know it. Then we moved into something a bit more complex, this idea of habitability. So water alone isn't necessarily enough. You need energy sources to drive metabolism. The water needs to be stable for a certain amount of time. You know, if there's a tiny puddle that lasts a week, you know, maybe it could be colonized if there's already a, a, a nice biosphere on Mars, but a biosphere is not going to emerge probably within a week in a tiny puddle. It has to be persist for some time. Uh, and there need to be uh, minerals and elements, important elements in the water that living organisms could take advantage of and drive their metabolism. So that's the concept of habitability, an environment that didn't necessarily have life in it, but, uh, but could have supported life. And then we're taking the big leap with Mars 2020 to seeking the signs of life. So instead, of, we are going to seek the signs of habitability, but then we're going to, like Viking did, explicitly look for evidence of life on Mars. The big difference between Viking and us, as I've said a number of times now, Viking was looking for extant life, that is life that is currently alive or recently deceased, versus our mission that is looking for uh, evidence of extremely ancient life. And the, the main reason we're doing that is because the surface of Mars today is extremely inhospitable. It's very, very dry. It's cold. It does get warm enough for, uh, water, for ice to, to melt, but the atmospheric pressure is so low that if ice melts and becomes liquid water, it instantly evaporates. So liquid water is unstable at the surface of Mars in almost all uh, places on Mars. And so 
Three billion years ago on Mars, the situation was very different. There was a much thicker atmosphere. We know from looking at the rocks that are deposited there, there was a lot of water flowing across the surface. So we're going to look at those rocks, explore those ancient environments, look for signs of life. So this is 2020. Just briefly, we're going to launch in uh, July or August of, of 2020. It should look something like you see here, the little video. That's MSL's launch, the Curiosity rover. Uh, then we will cruise towards Mars for about eight months, seven and a half months, arriving in February of 2021. And then we will do this crazy maneuver called the Sky Crane. Um, and whereas the Pathfinder mission and the Spirit and Opportunity rovers landed in a giant bouncy ball that you've probably seen, bouncing across the surface, coming to rest, opening up like a flower, the rover rolls off. You can't do that with a rover that's as big as Curiosity or, or the 2020 rover. And so you need to come down on retro rockets. And there's first a parachute and everything, but you, the parachute can't slow you down enough. And so you have to separate from the parachute, come down slowly on retro rockets, but you can't come all the way down like that because you'd stir up this huge cloud of dust and pebbles and everything. It would crash down on the rover and you'd pollute the whole area you're trying to explore. So you hover above, and then you lower the rover gently down until it, it touches the surface, and then this thing cuts, and it flies away and crashes somewhere far away. Um, so that's the, that's the thing there, the sky crane, and that blew everyone's mind in 2012, including mine, uh, right before I came to JPL. Uh, and uh, then we have the surface mission. So uh, two or three years... Uh, Earth years, so one Mars year is about two Earth years, and, um, and so we'll go one, one and a half Mars years as our primary mission. We hope to last longer than that, but our, our basic funding profile goes for that primary mission. Um, and we have some, some key objectives, which are geologic exploration. So we want to find ourselves safely in a new environment and explore it just like any geologist would. So we'll get out, take pictures, look around, evaluate the geologic structures around us in order to understand what are the processes that led to the formation and also to the alteration of all these rocks that are around us. So what were they deposited in a river, in a lake, in a delta, uh, some kind of hydrothermal system like Yellowstone, something like that. Um, then we want to ask the next question that I've already talked about. Was this environment habitable? Could it have supported life? Uh, a lot of complex measurements we need to take with different instruments on board the rover to understand uh, whether that's true or not. And then we'll take that next step and directly look for evidence of ancient life. So the picture that you see here uh, may be tough to see, but that is a stromatolite from Western Australia. It's a wrinkly layered rock with wrinkles that are, are less than a millimeter uh, in, in thickness. And that is a fossil microbial mat. So that thing was made of microorganisms uh, almost three billion years ago, and it's fossilized, and, and we can find it today. So we're looking for structures like that that you can see with your naked eye, but then we're making chemical measurements, maps of the elemental composition of that thing, looking for elements that are biologically important, um, and also looking for organic matter uh, and, and other biosignatures, signs of life in those rocks. The third objective prepare a returnable cache. So I'm showing you a hole that's been drilled in a rock uh, using a prototype Mars 2020 drill bit. Uh, MSL had a drill. Curiosity rover has a drill. It drills into rock and makes powder and puts that powder into instruments on the rover and make, makes measurements on the powder. Our rover's different. We will have a drill. 
our drill makes cores. So it will drill uh, into the rock and make a core that's about, think a, think a golf pencil. So it's kind of a small core. It was very hard to make a drill that can do this and fly it all the way to Mars and get it to work. And so we can only make small cores, but we're going to make about 30 of them. Uh, and we're going to seal them in titanium tubes. And we're going to place them on the surface of Mars. And then... Uh, if we all agree it's a good idea and we can get the funding and everything, this funding is currently not, uh, doesn't exist yet, but um, we're funded at least as far as to select those samples, put them in the tubes, put them safely on the surface. If the collection looks good, we hope that NASA will decide to fly another mission back to Mars with a rover, collect those tubes, put them in a rocket, the MAV, like you saw in The Martian, launch those tubes into orbit in a container, at which point they'll be orbiting Mars, and a third mission that's either already there orbiting Mars or a mission that flies there just for this purpose, grabs them out of orbit, brings them back to Earth, uh, and uh, we can study them now in our laboratories back on Earth, which are much more powerful than anything we can fly to Mars. And so this is really the way that we can start to authentically have any chance of answering that question, was Mars ever inhabited. So that's Mars sample return. We hope we, we get there. Our mission is to get the, the right samples and get them on the surface. Everything we're doing is in some sense a preparation for human exploration. NASA has the Journey to Mars campaign. They really want to put humans on Mars, uh, or at Mars at least, in the system uh, in the 2030s. So, next part of the talk. Uh, what motivates life? Um, so this, just this question itself, um, I'm going to now have to step outside of my deputy project scientist uh, NASA role. So now think of me more as a scientific philosopher rather than uh, maybe this hardcore Mars scientist because this itself is a controversial question. The answer to many scientists is nothing, dude. <laughs> Life just is. It is not motivated by anything. Um, but anyway... I'm very interested in this question, and it's really the question that got me into science in the first place. So, life, what is it uh, other than a magazine? So we first, in order to understand what motivates life, we have to ask the question, what is life? What is life? Well, we all have our mental image of what is life. Uh, some of you may picture a human. Some of you may picture a, a guinea pig. Uh, I picture something like this, some microbes. I was at a meeting about six months ago with this guy, Ford Doolittle. He's a giant uh, within biochemistry, made enormous contributions to science, and he's a happy guy, as you can see in the image. And um, one of his uh, key contributions was to change the way that we saw the tree of life. Uh, so the tree that you see here on your left um, is Darwin's first tree that we know about that he drew. So he conceived this beautiful idea that we can use a tree as a metaphor for the, the diversity of life that we see all around us. This is from one of his old notebooks, um, Earlier Than Origin of Species, some early ideas. And, and what he's saying here with this diagram is that the current diversity of life requires extinction. So, so there are trees with branches, and there are some dead branches, and, and some diversity of life no longer exists. That, I think, is what the the branches with the, the uh, line drawn across the end of them, and some of them don't have that line truncating them, and that's the current diversity of life that now exists, but it's all related together and potentially goes back to a single root organism at the origin of life. Ford Doolittle uh, does 
We all still believe that it wor- does work mostly like that. But Ford showed that there was something like what you see in the tree on the right with these branches growing together. So you notice there's nothing like that in Darwin's tree. Uh, and that is a process called lateral gene transfer or horizontal gene transfer. So it turns out some bacteria um, can exchange big chunks of their genetic material, their software sort of, and, and exchange whole subroutines for different metabolisms with other bacteria. And so it's just like this giant evolutionary leap that doesn't require the, the kind of normal standard processes of natural selection, but it's just a lateral exchange. And so this mixes up the whole tree and makes a lot of what we do with uh, our efforts to try to understand the diversity of life and and that tree and how it all works. It makes it very difficult because of these lateral gene transfer events. And Ford, when uh, at this meeting, which was called uh, the Boundaries of Life, really interesting small meeting, Uh, the topic of defining life came up, and Ford said, it's a fool's errand. You know, don't do it. There's nothing inherently distinct about life. It's just another type of chemistry, another type of physics. So saying we need to define life so we can find it on another planet, he's really saying, and at the risk of speaking for him, what I understood him to be saying is, it's just... We, maybe we'll see that part of chemistry there, or maybe we won't, but there's nothing especially distinct about life. And he said, that's vitalism, defining life. And so I didn't know much about vitalism, uh, but it turns out I've been thinking about vitalism for a very long time. Uh, when I looked up vitalism, I came across this guy, Xavier Bichat, and so people credit him with being the father of modern histology, that is the study of of tissues in the body. Apparently he was the first person to really start to look at tissues as individual distinct entities. So eye tissue, skin tissue, as distinct. He went a bit further than that and he thought different tissues were imbued with some fundamental essential nature that allowed them to do their job of being a tissue. Uh, That's not the kind of vitalism I think about, but what I'm really interested in is there's something there that goes beyond the basic physics and chemistry that motivates life, that makes it distinct somehow from the rest of chemistry. Is there something distinct about biology? And so this idea uh, is widely spread throughout human culture. And so here are three words in different languages that basically refer to this, this thing, this motivating uh, force. The one on the left is in Chinese. It's qi. So you've heard of qi, qigong. Uh, the sort of essential life force. Uh, up top there, we have prana in Sanskrit. It's a very similar concept. And then lung in Tibetan. And the Tibetans have this, this word uh, or phrase, lungta, which is wind horse. Uh, but the wind, the lung, in the, you've seen prayer flags and they have the horse on them. That's, that's the wind horse. And the wind of the wind horse is this essential life energy. And so not scientific Concepts, right? They're cultural, maybe spiritual concepts, not really scientific concepts. But very interested in that. Uh, I, that's what I went to grad school to study, actually, to help me figure out what is that thing. Pretty quickly found that it's very difficult to potentially impossible to study that scientifically. So I gave up that, doing that scientifically and pursued more practical approaches, but I'm still keenly interested in it. So back to uh, understanding um, what is life. This is typically how we learn what is life in our biology classes in seventh grade, maybe. Life is a list of characteristics. Anything that has these characteristics 
can be described as life. I'm not going to go through them individually, but you know the concept. Another way we understand life is uh, through a statement of meaning, a, a traditional definition. Here is what is sometimes called the NASA definition because it emerged out of a NASA strategic planning meeting with a bunch of non-NASA people. Uh, but uh, anyway, a, a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. We could talk for hours about what that means, but it does actually do a, a pretty good job at capturing uh, living systems. Uh, and the, the problem with these definitions, either statements of meaning or lists of concepts, is it's, you almost always can find an exception to, to these things. This is one that, that's uh, really difficult to escape. There's a third way. Um, and uh, Brendan, how much time do we have left? Five minutes. Okay. So I thought this thing would take about five minutes. So that's good. Uh, there's a little bit at the end, and we'll see if, if we want to do it or not. But Direct experience. So if you'll, uh, if you'll humor me, I'm going to ask you all to do something, do an activity with me. So the first part of the activity is to sit up straight. I know it's after lunch, potentially after beer for some of you. <laughs> so sit up straight, get a comfortable but upright posture, and take a deep breath and just let it out, just like, let's do one of those, yeah. Okay, good. So now you're paying attention. You're sitting up straight. You've just taken a deep breath. So um, what I'm doing here is instead of giving you a list of characteristics, instead of giving you a statement of meaning, we're just going to directly experience for about five minutes what is life. Okay, so we'll ask that question. So I'm going to sort of tell you, do this thing, place your attention on this, and you can place your attention on that, and your attention will inevitably wander, except for the master meditators uh, in the room. And, um, and when it does, either put it back to the, you know, the object of attention or just let it wander for the five minutes, and that's fine too. So the first one is on your breath. So you leave your eyes open, just sort of gently. You don't, don't have to look at me. You might just let your eyes just sort of loosely focus in front of you. But rest your attention on the breath for about 10 seconds. Okay, so that's the breath. Now, next, put your attention on your visual experience. So the light that's coming in through your eyeballs, um, what the, what's that like? Just kind of gently place your attention on what you can see. Good. So next, on the sounds that you hear, place your attention on the sounds that you hear.
Okay, I know some of you are jumping ahead. Place your attention on the smells that are around you, if there are any. What do you smell? Maybe very subtle. And can you taste anything? Maybe the remnants of your lunch. Whatever you whatever you taste. What's that sensation like? What's it like to taste something? Okay, next on your feeling. So the feeling of your clothes on your body, the feeling of your body on the chair, maybe you're standing up, the feeling of the ground beneath your feet. Can you feel gravity pulling you down? Solidness underneath you, the air around you. What does that feel like? Okay, and then the feelings, that was the outer feelings. What about inner feelings inside your body? This one's challenging for me, but can you feel the inside of your body, your organs, maybe you feel your heart beating, your lungs, maybe some space inside your body. And then your thoughts. So just place your attention on your thoughts. Kind of observe them go by. Maybe there's a, a voice, a conversation. Maybe there's images. What, what's the quality of your thoughts? And then, are you feeling any emotion? So some emotional sense. There's maybe some very complex biochemical system operating there, producing things that occur to you as feelings, like satisfied, angry, bored, annoyed at this guy, whatever it is. Feel it for a second. Okay, and then see if you can integrate all of that for about 10 seconds, maybe bounce back and forth between the different sensations, kind of an integrated whole of that experience.
last one for the last 10 seconds. Now that you've integrated all of that, ask yourself, is there anything else there that's not on that list? That's not sight, hearing, smell, taste, feeling, thoughts, emotions. Is there any other quality that's there? Okay, that's the end of that part. So, maybe we have a couple minutes to just blast through this little part, uh, which is a hint. Anyone know what this image is? Trinity, yeah. Okay, so this is 16 milliseconds into the active nuclear age of humanity. Uh, 16 milliseconds after the Trinity... Uh, bomb test was activated and it's pretty beautiful and horrible at the same time Um, but uh, interestingly I show this because fortuitously the nuclear tests that happened from Trinity uh, you know and unfortunately some of them continue to recent uh, um, recent history Um, this period of extremely active nuclear testing Uh, One of the things it did, besides changing our geopolitical landscape, is dramatically increase the concentration of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. Um, This is because neutrons are generated during a nuclear explosion. These high-energy neutrons bombard nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere. Most of our atmosphere is made of nitrogen. Uh, Nitrogen has an atomic mass of 14. It has seven protons and seven neutrons. When you knock off one of the protons from nitrogen and replace it with a neutron, um, you get carbon-14. You change that atom to carbon because this thing now has six protons instead of seven protons, and any atom with six protons is carbon by definition. And when it has an atomic mass of 14, it's radioactive and unstable. And you all know about this through carbon dating. So this is what we use for carbon dating. Uh, Nuclear bomb tests really threw off carbon dating for all the future generations. Um, When we look at a carbon date, it's usually years before 1950, before we kind of messed up the whole carbon-14 situation. But it did give us a new opportunity to do a different kind of science, which is to look at the replacement rate of atoms within our bodies. So within different tissues in our body, at what rate do the atoms exchange? So in a skin cell... uh, Individual cells are constantly metabolizing, just like you are, but at their own cellular, individual cellular level. So they're taking in energy and matter from their environment, transforming it and releasing waste products and so forth. And in so doing, they're exchanging, constantly exchanging matter and energy with their environment Um, and atoms. And so you may have heard this idea that there's not an atom in you today that was there 20 years ago. I don't know if you've heard this this thing or not, but uh, so I went looking for yeah yeah and that's a f- 
fantastic idea. What scientific basis do we have for that? And it turns out a lot of what we know about that comes from this. You can measure... Uh, so here's just one study that was done, 2009, Department of Justice, it turns out, looking at using the carbon-14 concentration in different tissues of human beings uh, to estimate the age of birth, uh, the date of birth, uh, the year of birth, sorry, and the year of death. So, by, so what you see here, that peak in the middle of the graph is the carbon-14 concentration that you saw on the last plot uh, with time, Okay. All of these people in this study, there were 36 cadavers. They all died in 2006. And their birth year, the birth date, is indicated at the beginning of the line. So there's 36 lines there. The red is the first 20 years of their life when they attained their teeth and skeleton. Okay? And how did that 20-year period align with the time of, with the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere at that time? Okay? So when you look at different tissues... Um, starting over on the right, you look at blood, and all those 36 people had the same carbon-14 concentration. So you see a, a dot, a diamond there, and some error bars. So that's sort of the standard deviation, the, the variability in the concentration of carbon-14 in the blood of those 36 individuals. It was all the same. So they, they've all been reset. Their, your blood is just constantly resetting and exchanging itself. The more variability you see... Uh, the more you are a product partly of what was there when you were born. Okay, so all those people were born at all different times, and so if all their carbon-14 is different, that would be expected if we retain that material. And in tooth enamel, uh, it's perfectly retained. So tooth enamel, once you, once you build it, it's, it keeps its atoms, the same atoms, they stay there. Your blood is constantly exchanging. Almost all your soft tissues are constantly exchanging. So it's basically true with some exceptions. So there are some tissues within you that really do not exchange. You know, you're sort of, you can, I, I like to imagine just like some teeth, you know, moving through the universe. They're permanent. All the other stuff <laughs> is impermanent. This guy uh, gave my favorite explanation of that sort of phenomenon. He's called Ilya Prigogine. And he talks about the theory of dissipative structures or dissipative systems. Uh, and a dissipative, a great example of a dissipative system is a whirlpool, like you see here. You pull the plug in your sink or bathtub, and you see a structure form. And matter and energy are flowing through that structure. And it's a temporary structure. It dissipates. It comes back there. Uh, and then, eventually, it completely dissipates. So it's, uh, it's not there. Then it's there for a while. It maintains some structure that's changing. And then it dissipates and it goes away. Matter and energy are flowing through it, but it is not matter and energy. Uh, it is just a pattern. And that's what you are, basically, except your teeth. Um, you're basically a pattern, a non-physical pattern, ultimately. I mean, you're not, it's not made of matter or energy. Matter and energy flow through it, um, but it is inherently not it. Uh, and uh, so here's a, a little poster of Elia with one of his famous quotes, entropy is the price of structure. And so, last slide, I give you the meaning of life. <laughs> Question mark. Um, so this is a scientific view, maybe, uh, that's maybe a little integrative, but the second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy of the universe is always increasing. Entropy is basically disorder. Okay, so the, a, 
a typical example is the messiness of your room. You clean up your room, and it's really ordered and nice, and then you leave it to its own devices, and it just becomes disordered over time. That's like the universe, a big messy room, uh, and getting messier all the time. But biology seems to violate that at the local scale. You're constantly, of its own accord, biology is self-replicating, self-organizing, just creating order out of disorder. But, so that's you in the middle. You, biology. S is entropy. T is time. Um, D is derivative for the calculus fans. So that's just change. So the change in entropy through time is less than zero in you. So your entropy is going down. You are getting more and more complex. But I put two greater than symbols on the top just to, to say that change in structure in you, that structure or negative entropy, the cost of that is entropy in the wider universe. So I'll leave you with one particular thought. Imagine yourself as a little whirlpool just flying around the world creating entropy wherever you go because you know that's what you do. Right? You, know, you do know that, right? You just find highly ordered things. You're incredibly efficient at this. Finding ordered things and destroying them. And we just did it at lunch. You know, we're doing it right now. You're, you're bringing entropy to those beautifully ordered tamales that Monica made for us. So, so that's what you do. That's one view of the meaning of life. And... Uh, So uh, I think I'm going to leave it there, leave you back with the question, and hopefully we have some good time for questions after that. Thank you. successive generation of rovers got significantly bigger, which brings with it a lot of engineering issues, you know, bigger rockets, sky cranes, and so forth. Yep. What is it that is driving that? Or another way of asking that, what is it that can't be miniaturized? Yeah, great question. Um, so notably, the um, I didn't show you a picture of the 2020 rover, but I did tell you it is going to look almost exactly like MSL. So we're trying our best to leverage the efficiencies uh, of having built MSL before and not having to do all that basic design work because it's a platform that really works. So this rover is not getting bigger, maybe very, very slightly heavier, but um, it'll pretty much look the same. Part of it has to do with scientific capabilities. So we're really just gnashing our teeth to get more and better science done at Mars. Um, And it's so expensive and difficult to fly big, heavy very capable scientific instruments. So it really all all goes to that. It's mostly about the complexity and capability of the instruments that we can pack onto a robot. We need a beefier robot to put better instruments on. Uh, And the drill I told you about that makes cores, that makes these samples, I mean, within planetary science, um, people argue about this. The people who work on Europa and the outer planets think, you know, we're spending all all their money and... um, I shouldn't say that on the radio, but uh, we, uh, it, we're all one giant team, and we all love each other, but 
Uh, it's a massive project, and it's a massive scientific achievement. I'm biased, but it's, it's a huge leap forward for planetary science to be able to go somewhere and physically bring things we've chosen back. To do that, you have to have a pretty beefy rover with a big robotic arm with a big drill on it. If you've ever used a hammer drill, Matt Carey, um, that's, that's basically what we're flying. So this big percussive drill. So that's pretty much why we do that. Any other questions? On the other train of thought, um, things like chi and prana, um, I'm wondering why it is uh, such a thing that modern science doesn't want to study or can't study these things when they come from such ancient traditions. Um, So do you have anything to say about that? (laughs) Yeah, sure. that's a great question that I also have. Um, and uh, it's incredibly difficult to study. So the, um, that thing you could also call consciousness, you know, like that. It's a similar situation. Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe consciousness is the thing that motivates life. Um, but it's just so hard to study. And it's why I did the direct experience thing. That's how I study it personally. Um, and it may be the only way to study it. It's really hard to get in there and measure. I don't know that you would want anyone trying to get in your head and measuring your consciousness directly, you know. Um, It's so hard to do and to replicate the experiments. And then there's other aspects. There's sort of a political, sociopolitical thing there. Um, So for me personally, part of it, I was really interested in... uh, complexity and chaos theory when that was happening and uh, systems theory and all of that. But I, I always loved mathematics, but I was never, a, you know, a, you know, an absolute fantastic prodigy mathematician, but, um, I felt like I didn't have the math chops to get in there and understand systems theory in the way, but I think that's the closest thing scientifically to integrating these sort of, um, hard to pin down concepts, but th- that still doesn't get there. Um, and so there's certainly pressure to, I would say, to not work on that and work on something that is more likely to move you forward and uh, build up your CV. There are people who are out there bravely doing it, um, and I'm happy for them. I do it kind of on my own time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I have three questions now. First, what's systems theory? Mm-hmm. Second, that slide that you showed from Antarctica from the 60s, what was it on that picture that made people consider that that might be evidence of life on Mars? Oh, and then, wait, right. and the third yeah. question mm-hmm. is, um, so the, the studying and looking for life now versus looking for evidence of ancient life what motivates the choice to do one or the other? Like, and do they relate? Can, can one yeah. feed the investigation of the other? Yes. Okay. So the first question, what is systems theory? Um, it is the study of how systems work. And so uh, particularly complex systems. Uh, have you heard of emergent properties? Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, immersion properties, so this idea that a system is a sum of parts, 
and the system exhibits behaviors, phenomena, that can't readily be explained by the individual interactions of the parts. So the whole is greater than the sum of its parts sort of thing. Emergent phenomena. So consciousness is probably this. You know, Consciousness emerges in the purely physical mechanistic view. Consciousness is a property that emerges unpredictably, perhaps, from the complex system of neurons that are connected together and the nervous system and the brain body and everything. Um, we can't make that leap scientifically yet, maybe ever. Um, it's an emergent phenomenon. The study of things like that and that process, how does that work? You know, what, what are emergent phenomena fundamentally? Why do they happen? And that, that's part of systems theory. Um, attractors, strange attractors is something. So systems, behaviors, you know, state shifts in a system. So a fishery. It's kind of fishery is cruising along, maybe, you know, fewer and fewer and fewer fish over the years, linearly kind of declining as you fish it. And then all of a sudden, wham, it collapses, you know, to incredibly low levels or total extinction. So that shift, and you can't, you can't say, oh, where's the last fish that was caught that was the, you know, pushed it over the boundary. You, you can't really solve it that way. It, the system has shifted to another state. If I, this is a stable state. For that glass, if I put some energy into it, it shifts its state down to the next stable state. You know, it's that sort of thing. Um, so that's systems theory. And then uh, the next question, why ancient life or ancient life, extant life? So I started to... Oh, the yeah, the Antarctica. So that was a picture of a tiny thing in a meteorite from Mars that was found in Antarctica. To make sure that you understand that. We know the meteorite was from Mars by the ratio of noble gases inside it, matches what we've measured in the Martian atmosphere. Um, but that little thing kind of looks biological to some people, and there are other things about the mineralogy of that meteorite that sort of are suggestive of you know minerals, carbonate minerals that uh, we know are interesting biologically. Um, and so this little shape, but it, a lot of it was just the shape the morphology, morphologic biosignatures, we call them. But it turns out that thing is so small, it's smaller than the smallest cell that we know uh, on Earth. And um, so for that and other reasons, we no longer think of that as evidence for life on Mars. Um, why ancient life? I talked a little bit about that, that Mar surface of Mars currently incredibly inhospitable. Ancient Mars we know was habitable. Um, lots of water on the surface, flowing rivers and lakes and that sort of thing, uh, thicker atmosphere. And uh, so that's the main reason. We're going to go to the time when Mars, we think, could have hosted life. Of course, we would love to know, is there still life? It's just it's a very different exploration path you have to use to, to do that. And we, I'm not going to talk much about planetary protection here, but it's a major subject. There is an officer of planetary protection within NASA um, to help us uh, understand how to keep our spacecrafts clean so that we don't pollute Mars and prevent future efforts to go looking for evidence of life on Mars. Uh, that is especially and particularly important and challenging if you're going to look for extant life. Uh, it's in a way more challenging um, 
sort of planetary protection situation. When you're doing that, you have to go, you would want to go where places where there's ice um, and, and potential for uh, extant life. There are a lot of people out there who think we should be doing that and that we're on the wrong track. I, I think we're on the right track. It's what I do on Earth. Um, but, uh, but, that, but it's a debate. Um, what was the last question? That was it. Did I get them all? Okay. One more question. You sort of answered it, I think, in answering the question about the sausage, but what are you looking for in a rock from Mars that's going to say, oh, okay, that's, we've just found life on Mars? Yeah, fantastic question. So that, uh, what are we looking for? that would be evidence for, for ancient life on Mars. And um, really, we start, I think we start with the morphology. So I showed you those wrinkly rock shapes. Uh, so something that could be, we think the life would have been microbial. We don't think it would have had the time or uh, the environmental situation probably to develop the kind of complexity that we see around us. We think maybe it would be more obvious there to the other rovers if it had developed that complexity. So we think we're looking for microbial life. And on Earth, in the most ancient rocks on Earth, we look for these things called stromatolites, wrinkly rocks that are, it's like pond scum, layers of pond scum that trap sediment day after day. It grows photosynthetically, traps some sediment. Over and over and over, you build this wrinkly fossil called a stromatolite. That's one of the things we're looking for. Um, in earth rocks, when we can take them back to the lab and cut them up and slice them and polish them so thin that we can shine light through them, we can actually see fossil bacteria. So little spheres made of organic matter and filaments, little tubes in rocks that are billions of years old, we can see these things. In order to see them, we have to cut the rock open and polish it and shine light through it. We can't do that with the rover. So that's a main reason why we want to bring the samples back. Those are called microfossils. So we would love to find microfossils eventually. Uh, but with the rover, we could maybe see a stromatolite. Um, and then we look for geochemical evidence. So there are elements that are called biologically essential elements. We use the term schnapps, uh, not, not what you're thinking. Uh, C-H-N-O-P-S. So carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur, elements that all life has and are critical to life. We look for concentrations of those elements um, and then minerals that are often produced in the presence of life, uh, calcium carbonate, um, sulfates, um, other minerals. Uh, but really, and then isotopes are another thing I won't go into, but um, isotopes allow us, which are element, you know, atoms of the same element, like carbon-14 is an isotope of carbon. Most carbon is carbon-12, some is carbon-13, some is carbon-14. Those isotopes, just like the tracer experiments I told you about studying flow of carbon through humans, that allows us to study the flow of these biologically important elements through organisms, ancient uh, ecosystems. So we use those isotopes. Uh, and really what we what we're the model is to look for converging lines of evidence so there's no one single thing i mean there are things you could imagine where it's that thing is so compelling but that's like the martian meteorite thing it was like look at this shape it's so compelling and there i don't mean to simplify it to completely that but um it was a little bit 
uh, like that. And uh, now we, we must have converging, multiple converging lines of evidence that suggest that a biological origin for that set of phenomena is more likely than an abiotic one. So that's how we think about it. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs>